we've entered the Anthropocene, an epoch shaped by human activity. With science and technology, we have accomplished incredible things, but also caused undeniable damage to the planet's environment. It's becoming more and more crucial to understand how our system of knowledge shapes the world around us. And to move forward, we have to look back. The origins of tool usage in its simplest form lay somewhere before the divergence between human and ape. But going beyond sticks and stones picked up from the ground and start modifying them to fit specific tasks is distinctively human. Axes, scrapers, glue, bows, needles, ropes. With each innovation, our ancestors propelled themselves forward, opened up new avenues, and not only in a practical sense. Material culture was key to the evolution of knowledge. It took shape in those tools, in the way they are invented, manufactured and then used. We've always looked up to the sky in awe, peering at glimpses of light against the black backdrop of the night before we even knew they were stars. Telescopes allowed us to make sense of these celestial bodies and observe their travels. Spectroscopy let us split their light into wavelengths and discover their chemical composition, their temperature, density, mass, distance from Earth. Radioastronomy revealed the existence of pulsars, quasars, black holes, all the way up to instruments allowing us today to pursue gravitational wave astronomy. With the same ingenuity, our gaze turned to the minuscule, starting with simple magnifying lenses and progressing to contemporary electron microscopes that use the tiniest particles in existence to shed light on the structures of cells, microbes and crystalline structures. And tools didn't just allow us to go beyond our body's physical capabilities either, they did the same with our mind. Numbers and letters, symbols from mathematics, physics and chemistry, formulas and diagrams can all be rightly considered tools, not of wood and stone, but of paper. This is The Evolution of Knowledge, a podcast created by Sisa Ilas and the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science. My name is Diego Vizintin, and today we are talking about paper tools. This concept, introduced by the historian of science Ursula Klein, can be extraordinarily useful in understanding the history and spread of scientific knowledge. We are very grateful she's agreed to join us on a video call from Berlin. Welcome, Professor. Could you introduce yourself for our listeners? So, my name is Ursula Klein. I'm uh, a historian of chemistry. I have also done history of technology uh, and history of the laboratory more broadly. I'm also a philosopher of science and I have been teaching philosophy and history of science at the University of Constance. In addition, I'm a senior researcher at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science. Thank you for your time. I've already mentioned our main topic. In particular, you have focused much of your work on Jakob Berzelius, a Swedish scientist that's considered among the founders of modern chemistry. He's perfected, among other things, a system of chemical formula notations that's still in use today, which exemplifies what we're talking about. Could you give us the broad strokes of this story? 
The Berzelius notation is what is today called empirical formulas, such as H2O for water or H2SO4 for sulfuric acid, just to, to make clear what we are talking about. So the most simple chemical formulas. He introduced this uh, in two important publications in 1813 and 1814. In that time and in the decades before, chemists carried out quantitative analysis of substances and they also studied chemical reactions quantitatively from the mid-18th century onward. This was done for the first time. So they wanted to know for example, that not only that water consists of hydrogen and oxygen, but they wanted to know how much hydrogen and oxygen is contained in such a compound. This was a lot of very difficult uh, studies on, on the empirical level in the laboratory. They needed a laboratory for that. They needed laboratory equipment for this. Uh, parallel to this um, Several chemists, not all of them, promoted the atomic theory. John Dalton in England was such a very important chemist who had proposed an, a chemical atomic theory in a book that was entitled Philosophy of Chemistry and was published in 1808. So, Berzelius knew about this. He, he was a professor at the time of medicine and then of chemistry and pharmacy at the University of Stockholm. And he also, he first did electrochemical experiments, galvanic experiments. That was of interest to him uh, as somebody who had studied medicine and who also first taught medicine. But then he switched to... Uh, the quantitative analysis of many of mineral substances. And he did this in a laboratory of a mining owner. This is very interesting because Sweden had a long mining tradition and quantitative analysis was also done in the context of mining. I have also to add, around 1800, um, quantitative analysis in chemistry had achieved a very important step, namely what is called stoichiometry. Several chemists, like Proust, for example, and other chemists, compared the quantitative um, composition of various kinds of compounds, and they found certain regularities in these comparisons. They found, for example, that compounds always have a constant quantitative uh, composition. They also found what is today called the law of multiple proportions, which means if two elements combine in such a way that several different compounds are created, the proportions, their proportions form whole integers. So these studies showed on an empirical level that substances cannot combine in all possible quantitative relations, but there are discrete and discontinuous forms of combinations, quantitative combinations between the elements. So these empirical findings that were done at various places, including 
Stockholm, including the university, but also this laboratory of the mining owner. Uh, these were strong empirical corroborations of an atomic theory. But the atomic theory of Dalton postulated, in addition to what was found empirically, postulated a number of speculative assumptions that could not be corroborated empirically at the time. For example, the theory assumed that atoms were small round bodies. It assumed that uh, atoms of different elements had affinities among each other, but atoms of the same kind of element exerted a repulsive force among each other. So this was a more speculative theory in the tradition of philosophical atomism. Yeah, It was a chemical theory insofar as Dalton postulated that each element consists of a specific kind of atom that had a specific characteristic weight, but in addition there were speculative elements in that theory. And this was that speculated aspect of Dalton's atomic theory was, uh, was not what... Berzelius had in mind for a nomenclature, for an external representation that is to be accepted by the whole chemical community, because not all chemists really believed in atomism. So, and for this reason, he introduced a more arbitrary notation, namely his formulas, that consist of numbers. A number represents just a portion or a bit of an atom, a quantitative bit, whether this is an atom or not can remain open. And the numbers tell you how many of these bits are contained in one larger bit of a compound, what we call molecule today. So this was his, it was a kind of atomism in the broadest sense without the speculative dimensions of Dalton's atomism. <laughs> so Berzelius' chemical notations are an example of a paper tool, an abstract scientific instrument that in a sense is not that different from a traditional tool, like a hammer, an axe, or perhaps an abacus to remain in the scientific realm. But there are also significant differences between them. What distinguishes them? Yes. Yes, you're right, you're right. It's a different level. An abacus is used to facilitate arithmetic calculations, mainly to learn this until a student really has done it often enough and then she can do it and then she does not need the abacus any longer. And you do it according to fixed rules. You do not invent new rules, you have to learn the rules. And the abacus just facilitates this. The chemical formulas and what I designate paper tools is used, follows rules also, certain rules, in this case arithmetic rules to some extent, but it is used in a more creative way to produce new knowledge, mainly to model and to simulate processes that are going on in the laboratory and or in nature. So this was this is 
the way how it was actually. It was used to represent the composition, but then for the acceptance of chemical formulas, it was more important that they could be extremely well, much better than ordinary language, much better than Daltonian pictures, could be extremely well used for modeling chemical reactions, for modeling the structure of chemical compounds. So the productive aspect is important here. A side benefit of the widespread adoption of such a method is that scientists now could not only be informed of each other's results, but also follow along throughout the process of chemical experimentation, which opened up new avenues of collaboration and critique. How did this change scientific research? In, in this specific case, it has a very important impact because It was a lingua franca of chemistry independent of their different natural languages. So they can, could really communicate by showing each other their formulas and by showing each other uh, also other results of experiments independent of French language or Latin language, what, what was the predominant language in the in languages in the 18th century, and then came German language and so on. So it gives you an additional possibility to communicate. In addition, of course, we have what is also important, of course, for all kinds of communication are the organized forms in which these communications take place, that is the scientific institutions. Yeah, the university departments, the, depart the academies, the, uh, the fact that money is available to organize conferences and these kinds of things, or to publish. And all of this existed in the early 19th century as well. But it certainly facilitated communication. Chemistry is, of course, far from being the only field of study that has benefited from such tools. Could you give us perhaps some other examples at the same level of influence on the history of science? Yes. The most obvious tool in this respect are mathematical tools. I think that's the most ubiquitous. The, I mean, think of the introduction of the differential calculus, what that enabled physicists to do, to think about the processes that are going on. Compared to this uh, geometrical representations of physical processes have limits that could be pushed uh, with diff the differential calculus. And of course, various additional mathematical tools that are used in physics are, very, are examples. But there are other examples. Pictures can be used as paper tools. I mean, you know, for uh, perhaps David Kaiser's work on Feynman diagrams, I, I have no detailed insight into this, but in quantum electrodynamics, that Feynman diagrams had a creative aspect or helped to create yeah, knowledge. Tables can do the same. I think the periodic table, um, the ordering of elements in two dimensions in a row and in a, in a lines helped to discover actually regularities uh, among elements and the gaps that were left open in, in the table were certain incentives to fill it in, I mean, to, to carry out research in a certain direction. So there are other paper tools, of course, 
the most important are mathematical ones. External representations and embodiments of knowledge such as texts, notations and instruments also serve as the backbone of the transmission of systems of knowledge, both from one generation to the next and from one group to another. What ultimately decides which paper tools or techniques spread widely and which ones fall out of use? Is it just chance? I don't think uh, it is all chance. I think the community will, after a certain while, adopt the tools that do the job they want them to do, right? They are the, the most convenient, the most practical, the easiest ones to apply for their objectives, I mean, for their kind of modeling. I made in my book a comparison between the Daltonian diagrams and Berzelius' uh, notation. And the British, of course, supported at first the Daltonian diagrams because that was the British context, that was their man. But in the, in the 1830s, it became clear to them that they were too complicated. It was too complicated to draw this, yeah, to draw these molecules. And in addition, they had this speculative meaning also. But even if they did not have, even if, if, if you would say, okay, forget about it, it's just a, a symbolic representation. I represent a certain quantity of an element just with a circle. It doesn't mean that it is an atom that is round. But even if you did that, it was much more, uh, took much more time to draw these things. And the Brazilian formulas, of course, uh, allow you also just to do the arithmetic calculation. You have the numbers also. It's much quicker and much more convenient. So there was a direct competitive advantage. But you also touched on a very interesting point about the political considerations of using one system or the other. In this case, practicality won out. But are there others in which expediency was sacrificed in favor of allegiance? Oh, yes, there are, of course, yeah. There are many of these cases. I mean, think of Einstein's theory in the Nazi time, Nazi Germany. I mean, just because Einstein was a Jew, uh, this was a very important argument uh, to, to have doubts about his theory. And, uh, I mean, you will find similar cases today. Uh, of course, here in the West, people are more skeptical about the scientific results made in China than they would be uh, in, in, in American laboratories, yeah? I mean, there are numerous cases of this, of course. And coming back to us, in previous interviews, both Professors Ren and Laubichler and Professor Levinson touched on the fact that tools have advantages and disadvantages, particularly when they are black boxed. Once the actor is removed from understanding the functioning of their tools, they lose something. With modern instruments, we can do a lot more, but understand a lot less about how we are doing it. Since you've done such extensive work on the history of paper tools, do you have any thoughts on the relationship between humans and scientific instruments? Yes, of course. I mean, this is today, of course, uh, scientists buy their instruments from uh, specialized companies and they often do not know how they function. I mean, this is, they, they know the how to do 
rules of their application, but they don't know how they function. And this is absolutely the same with uh, technical tools. I mean, you buy a computer, you don't need to know how a computer functions, or you even don't need to know in many cases how the program functions. You can just apply it. The, but the interesting point is there are always people who know it. Yeah, uh, the the humanity, so to speak, knows it, and you, if you want to know it, you can get information about this. There are, of course, very important areas where this is not the case. This is military, of course. This is military secrecy, where uh, that that goes much more <laughs> beyond the usual black box issue, uh, where you have no no access and you don't, um, yeah. I don't see, I mean, the way you describe it, I don't know what uh, Jaren and Laubichler told you, but I don't see a big difference between using a computer and a computer program and using, for example, an electron microscope in genetic research, for example. I mean, if you do genetic research, you don't know how what exactly goes on within the electron microscope, but you know how to prepare your sample and you know you know how the pictures look like and you get skill to interpret and to see something in the pictures and to in interpret these pictures. So that's enough for you. Yeah, because we live in a big technological society and scientists have to rely on the companies who construct the electron microscopes and the computers. And so that's fine. That's division of labor. <laughs> and as a conclusion, where would we look today to see the cutting edge of paper tools, if you want, or abstract tools is maybe the more correct term? Yes, I think the, the more general, generic term that could be used here is modeling tools. Uh, and you are not, paper is here just the hardware, yes, the medium. Of course, it is today the computer and it is the, it's, it's the mathematics and the programs that, that you use in the computer could be compared with what I did for, for the early 19th century when all of the scientists still used paper to do their research and, yeah, to do, to, and to do modeling and simulation. Not surprising, of course. We ourselves are using a computer to conduct this interview. Thank you, Professor Klein, for taking the time to talk to us. I thank you for asking these wonderful, interesting questions. Material culture as a means of cognition clearly extends not only to instruments and laboratory equipment, but also to the symbolic means of our thinking, to arithmetic systems, writing, and other external representations of knowledge that can be used to pass information on, to store it, and to manipulate it, creating new insights and avenues of research. The ability to speak to one another in precise scientific terms is also an important step towards new forms of collaboration and the beginnings of a global scientific community. This has been The Evolution of Knowledge, a podcast created by Sisa Ilas and the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science, written and produced by Diego Vizintin, Sofia Gru and Lorenzo Carta, music by Gregor Kendall. Next time we'll talk about sharing of knowledge. So it was an island uh, in the middle of the, the mountains that, just like Venice, was a living artifact, we can, we can say. 
uh, with specific scientific, local and engineering knowledge. The Aztec engineers knew how to cope with it. They knew the territory, they knew the, uh, the conditions, they had the knowledge. Uh, and that created a strange imbalance between the rulers and the ruled. 